0: Well, it's nearly Christmas and uh, although we were going to finish Romans this week, it's good that we're moving on to to what Christmas is going to be all about, isn't it? So you remember that uh, over the year we've been looking at the book of Romans, we've done 15 chapters of it, we've missed out the last one. So I have prepared a little sort of guide to chapter six in here, there are copies on the back. Uh, uh, at the back there, if you want to take one on your way out. Elijah's holding it up and modelling it beautifully there. Brilliant, thank you. And uh, that's Romans. It will also be up on the website, my uh, my website. That is johnallen.xyz um, from tomorrow. So if you don't get one today and you want to get it electronically as a PDF or whatever, then that's possible. Just remember, it's John Allen, not Allen. Alpha, Lima, Lima, Alpha, November, not Echo, November. All right. Who wants to echo November anyway? It's a pretty disastrous one. Anyway, so this morning, we're looking at something different. I've been given two passages to talk about. One is Isaiah chapter 9 in the Old Testament, which comes 700 years before the first Christmas. It's a prophecy. So let's read some verses from there. Chapter 9 and verse 1 of the book of Isaiah. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea, along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressed. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal, the passion of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's move forward 700 years (laughs) to Luke chapter 1. And here's a little bit of the Christmas story from Luke. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Sorry, sorry, if you're following this, it's verse 26. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was deeply troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end.' "'How will this be?' Mary asked the angel, "'Since I'm a virgin.' The angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. <laughs> no wonder that's where she was going to see uh, Elizabeth and check up whether this was true or not. I've called this talk the girl who brought us Christmas because she did, didn't she? There are lots of uh, important people in the Christmas story, but without a mother for Jesus, the whole thing would not have happened. And so this girl is super important. We often just see her in, in uh, crib scenes like this, and she looks very kind of holy and, and otherworldly and fairy tale kind of in their approach. She's even got on my tie this morning. Look, she's in there as well. And uh, uh, we, we, we we're so used to the story of Joseph and Mary. We tend not to think about what the girl must have been like. So I want to ask three questions about Mary this morning. Just first of all, what was Mary like? What age was she was she thinking about How does she take this kind of uh, situation when an angel appears to her and says she's going to be pregnant without even having sex first? Second, what did Mary understand? (laughs) What did she get from what the angel was saying to her? And third, how did Mary react? So we'll just have a quick look at those three things this morning and we'll weave into it in the background that prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 because that's one of the things that must have come through Mary's mind when the angel started speaking to her using the words that he did. So, first of all, what was Mary like? There are several things that we we, we know about her. Some things we don't, but one one or two things we can work out. She was very young. She was uh, just about to be married to Joseph, as you know, or she was on the way towards marriage with Joseph. And uh, that usually happened to a girl when she was about 16. So Mary would be 15 or even 14 at the time the angel came to her. She was very young. It's interesting, isn't it? Because many of the special births in the Bible are to very much older ladies. (laughs) People like Samson, Samuel, people like that. Um, Often God gives uh, an older woman who thinks she's past childbearing a baby when she least expects it. Mary's at the other end of the scale. She's incredibly young. And betrothed, as I mentioned, that meant more than just engaged. It meant that you were contracted to this marriage, and in in words, to get out of it, you would have to have a divorce. And you know, when Joseph found that Mary was pregnant, he was minded to put her away quietly, to make the arrangements and get it all sorted out without making any fuss about it. Because strictly, according to the law, she should have been stoned to death for becoming pregnant without being married first. But she was betrothed, and that was a situation in which you could be, from quite a young age, you could be betrothed as early as 12. And uh, it seems to me, from what we know about the tax situation, and the census, and Bethlehem, and the donkey, and so on, that uh, Mary lived in Nazareth, quite a few miles away from where Joseph came from, and he seems to have come from Bethlehem. Uh, there are arguments about that. But anyhow, if that's the case, there was a fair distance between them. And they might not have seen an awful lot of one another. <laughs> Engaged couples in our society tend to walk around hand in hand. They tend to do everything together. Uh, well, most things together. And uh, they tend to be getting closer and closer as the wedding approaches. That wasn't the way it was in those days. What the husband would do, and remember, he'd be quite young when he started on this whole thing, 15 or 16 himself, is that he would start to prepare a home for the wife. It might take some years. He might live with his parents for quite some time until he was ready, had everything together, had got the house and the job and everything else and felt ready in himself to take her on. And then you'd send an invitation to the betrothed girl's family to come and have a party and they'd bring the bride. And then after that, she would be you, you'd be married, you'd live together. And so Mary was on the path towards something which was unbreakable. She knew exactly what her future was going to be. And God broke into the situation and changed all of that. Mary also, one thing we can be sure of as well with her, is that she was aware of the Bible promises from the past. Things like Isaiah chapter 9 that had been made to her people in the past. She grew up in Galilee. And Galilee was an area where the Pharisees especially had been teaching for many years. Now, the Bible gives the Pharisees a pretty negative press, but there were some good things about them. And one good thing was that they really did teach and believe the scriptures of the Old Testament. And they were powerful in the north, in Galilee. And so in the synagogues there, it was difficult to grow up as a Jewish boy or girl without knowing a fair amount about the Old Testament. It was also an area which had been conquered by heathen invaders many, many times in the past, and it was under Roman occupation now. And uh, in the north, that, that was much more obvious than it was in the south. And so people in the north tended to thirst for the day when freedom would come. And you'd look back into the Old Testament and think, these promises may be hundreds and hundreds of years away from fulfillment, but they're still going to come true. And Mary was brought up in that culture. She knew the Old Testament She knew the promises, and when the angel started speaking to her, he was using words that she already knew. She was aware of other cultures too, though, (laughs) because Galilee was that kind of place in her day. Uh, Isaiah 9 calls it Galilee of the Gentiles, doesn't it? And uh, that takes a a little bit of explaining. Uh, Remember, the the words of Isaiah 9 are that the, 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 the land which has been conquered so often... Uh, in which so much gloom and distress has been, will be glorious. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Well, where is that? There's, here's here's a, a, a map of uh, lower Galilee. There's Nazareth, uh, where Mary came from. And all the way around it, you find Gentile civilizations. For instance, you don't have to go far till you get to the coast. And there's the massive city of Caesarea, built by Herod to honor the Roman emperor. And it was the center of Roman administration. You know, Pontius Pilate and people like that did not live in Jerusalem. Pilate came into Jerusalem as little as he possibly could. He lived up in Caesarea, in his palace, a much nicer place. That's where the Apostle Paul was imprisoned, if you remember, last year, before he was sent off to Rome to to, to appear before Caesar. Caesarea was a big Roman center. And there was lots of building work to be done there. Uh, it's possible even that uh, local tradesmen like uh, Joseph and his son were going to be employed over the next few years. They certainly would be employed in some of the other places. Beth Shan, not far away, was a Roman soldiers kind of retreat centre. It had all the, all the kind of facilities uh, for the entertainment of soldiers who were off duty. It had a hippodrome where horses raced. It had a theatre. And if you go to Bethshan today, what you see more than anything else is a Roman remains. It was a Roman city, right there in Galilee. And just four miles north of Nazareth, there was Sepphoris, which was the original capital. And it was as Roman as you could possibly get. Big town, lots of Roman building going on there, and uh, people conjecture that uh, uh, Joseph and uh, his son Jesus may well have been employed uh, doing some of the timber work or even the stone work, because a carpenter meant being a mason too in those days. uh, In Cypherus, it would be an obvious place to get work. And so there were uh, people who were non-Jewish all over the place. And Mary, like the other uh, Jewish girls of her area, would have thought, someday this is all going to change. Someday God is going to send a deliverer who will change this whole area. And instead of having a confusion of different cultures and different religions and different ideas all over the place, we will have a day when the worship of God is all over the place. There's one other thing about her as well, I think. She was full of hope. (laughs) She was somebody who was looking forward to God doing something. So she wasn't as totally phased by an angel (laughs) as other girls might have been. She was ready. She was expecting something to happen at some point, if not through her, at least, you know, in, in, in the future of her people. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I reckon, just having done a quick count in my head, there must have been something like 300 girls who were teenagers in the area of um, Nazareth at the time when Mary was living. God chose her. Of them, well, if it's one in ten, I guess, there must have been about 30 who were 14 or 15. And God chose her specifically, I think, because she was ready in a way that many of the others might not have been. What did she understand? When an angel appears in front of you and starts telling you you're going to have a baby, just how do you react? How do you make sense of it? We don't know where the angel did appear to Mary. Uh, The film from which I'm taking these stills obviously believes it was in the middle of the night somewhere. Well, certainly that happened with Joseph. I'm not sure it happened with Mary. Anyway, what did she understand at any rate when the angel started saying, you're going to have a baby? She would listen to what he was saying. And I think passages of the scriptures that she knew so well would come to her mind straight away because of the way the angel spoke. When he said, you will conceive... You will be with child and give birth to a son. She, might have, she must have thought, this sounds just like Isaiah chapter 7. That's the passage two chapters before the one we've read this morning, which, uh, in which Isaiah is having an argument with King Ahaz. You see, Ahaz, the king, didn't really trust God too much. And so when two of the neighboring nations formed an alliance to march against him, he wondered, is my army strong? Can it stand out against the enemy? And Isaiah finds him surveying the defences of the city and goes up to him and says, Listen, I have a message from God for you, for, for you from Ahaz. Uh, you don't need to worry about those two powers that are going to oppose you. Uh, they're going to be rubbed out by God. You don't need to worry about that. And God will send you any sign you like to make you realise that this is a case. And Ahaz, who didn't really want to trust God, went super religious, which is what people do when they, they want to back out of something that God is saying. I won't ask the Lord for a sign. That would be impious of me. No, 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 no. No, I'm, I'm, I'm quite uh, quite uh, unwilling to make put God to that trouble. And Isaiah gets really angry and says, listen, because you won't ask God for a sign, God's going to give you one anyway. And that sign is going to be this. A girl is going to become pregnant and have a baby. And the word that's used in Hebrew is the word Alma, which can sometimes use, mean just a young woman. But from the earliest days, it meant... It was taken to mean a young woman who has not had sex yet, a virgin. A virgin will conceive. She'll bring forth a son. And he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And before he's grown to the fullness of years, you'll see that God keeps his promises and your enemies have just been defeated. But uh, you are being judged. Because you wouldn't ask God for the sign he's going to give you. And uh, Mary must have thought, this sounds like God with us all over again. And then she'd hear him talking about, there will be no end to his kingdom. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. And she would think, that sounds just like Daniel 7. (laughs) Because in the book of Daniel, in chapter 7... You have a, a vision that Daniel has where he says this As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, that's God, took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze, a river of fire was flowing. Tremendous vision. And uh, it, it goes on from there to say In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. What's he doing in front of the Ancient of Days? But he's coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and power. This person who looks human is taken into the presence of God himself. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. And then these words, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so Mary is listening to this and thinking, Daniel chapter 7. This is the guy, and he's going to be my son. And there's a third scripture that comes to our mind, and of course, that's Isaiah 9. Because when it talks, when the angel talks about, uh, he will be given the throne of his father David by the Lord God, that's exactly what's promised in Isaiah chapter 9, isn't it? This speaker, this child who is born, who's given uh, to the people of, of Galilee, who's born in the north of the country, just where Mary is standing at that moment, this child is going to be given the throne of his father, David. And so she can recognize in the echoes of what the angel is saying, exactly what he's talking about. Where is it going to be? Well, let's look at that verse a bit more closely. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Where on earth is all of that stuff? Well, if you look on the map here, you'll see there's a little sort of dotted line around the Sea of Galilee. And that's the ancient territory of Naphtali and Zebulun, two of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the territory they were given when uh, Joshua uh, took them into the Promised Land. And so the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali is up there. Galilee of the nations, well, that's exactly uh, where you are. That's what it was called because, well, for all sorts of reasons. First of all, when David uh, came to the throne, he gave some of the towns in Galilee to King Hiram of Tyre, who lived a bit further up. And so Hiram's Gentile people came to live in those towns right in the middle of, of, of Galilee. And so it was Galilee of the nations. But more importantly, later on, when the big nations outside started invading Israel, the first places to suffer were in the north. And after the evacuation of, of, of uh, people uh, who never came back again from the 10 tribes, uh, 10 northern tribes of Israel. Galilee was settled by people from other nationalities. Now, in Jesus' day, it had all changed because the Jews, 70 years after the exile, came back to their own land. And the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, who are based in the south, round about Jerusalem, spread out to occupy Galilee as well. But it wasn't really their territory. It was the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And they were still mixed in with lots of people from the nations. And Peter, James, and John, as they sold their fish, would be selling it to Syrians who'd come down from Caesarea Philippi to buy it. They'd be selling it to Romans centurions, who who wanted something for the supper. And uh, they'd have to speak Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew and lots of different languages in order to Galilee of the nations was a bit of a melting pot. How about... Um, beyond the Jordan. Well, on the other side of the Jordan, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there were kingdoms that were not really Jewish. They were still very, very pagan, but that's another part of that area too. And the way of the sea, well, you may just, if you've got very good eyes, see the dotted line that goes down the coastline there. I'll fill it in a bit for you. The way of the sea is uh, the old route by which invading armies would sweep down the coast into Jerusalem and cause pillage and destruction wherever we went. And Isaiah tells us, this is not going to happen in this region anymore. All that's been wrong, all the signs of warfare and battle and strife are going to disappear. Have you noticed in the papers over the last few weeks how many pictures there have been of towns that have been occupied by the Russians, where they've now been swept out and they've left all sorts of stuff behind them? And there have been pictures of basements where Russian soldiers have been sleeping, uh, pictures of rusted armaments and old rifles lying about in the streets, uh, pictures of uh, uh, the kinds of of, of, uh, things that they've been looting and the damage they've left behind them. All of that says there has been a war. And in Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea, there was often a situation where you'd find all discarded weapons, the, uh, the, the, the battle wear of soldiers lying about. And God says in Isaiah 9, it's going to stop. War is going to come to an end in this area and out of this area will come somebody who's going to spread it over the world. And so it says in those verses we read, every warrior's boot used in battle Every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It'll be fuel for the fire. We don't need those things anymore. There will be no more marks of oppression and, and, and terror and destruction. It will all be taken away because of the baby who's come. For to us, a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And then Isaiah is on to say, and he will be called. <laughs> Four names you have there, I think, remind us of some of the things that uh, Jesus, when he was born, was, uh, uh, had in his job description. First of all, wonderful counsellor. Wonderful counsellor, it really means planner of wonders, <laughs> planner of miracles. And one of the great things that Christians will tell you that Jesus has brought into their lives is an order and a sense and a purpose that was never there before. In other words, this name is about planning. The wonderful counselor can make sense of your life in a way that nobody else can. As one old hymn hymn puts it, something beautiful, something good, all my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, and he made something beautiful out of my life. He's the master planner, he's one who brings miracles into our lives. He's the one who does things with people and situations that they cannot believe are possible. And as the angel says to Mary, with God, anything's possible. He can do anything. He can give you a baby. He can give Elizabeth a baby. He can do all kinds of things that you cannot dream he can possibly do. So all Mary can say in astonishment as well, let it be to me as you have said. God's planning. And when God comes into your life it starts to make sense and how much our world today needs that kind of planning as the numbers of Christians or people who claim to be Christians in our country go down you see mental health problems on the rise you see broken relationships everywhere you see a rise in crime and uh, uh, and, uh, disregard for human life and stabbings and uh, all kinds of things going on. Uh, The drug gangs have more and more and more. People want an escape from reality because they cannot face what reality is all about. Unless there is a God who can put your life in order and your society in order and do something about it. The wonderful counselor. But it's not just gonna be the wonderful counselor. He's also gonna be the mighty God. (laughs) And mighty God, the word really means God the warrior is somebody who not only has great plans, but is able to bring them about. So this is talking about power. The fact that God is somebody who actually moves on a situation and changes it. He doesn't just talk about it, he does something. And rather than sitting up in a cloud somewhere and looking down on his world and meditating in ecstasy, he gets involved, he gets his hands dirty. And Jesus came to earth as God in human form to do something about our human situation. The mighty God. And third, he's the everlasting father. (laughs) What does it mean? Well, a father who's everlasting means somebody who's always got your back. (laughs) He's always there for you. You can always go back to him. You can always relax in the, the security and the comfort and the protection of somebody who's far greater than you are and who's able to look after you. And the great thing about being a Christian and trusting Jesus is the fact that your life is secure. My name is written on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no voice can bid me thence depart. You are safe in the hands of Jesus. Mind you, I could also have used another P word here, patience. (laughs) Because we let Jesus down all the time, don't we? We let down our heavenly father. And the everlasting God is still there for us. He picks us up. He keeps us going. He keeps on loving us. I'm just preparing some stuff at the moment for... um, Uh, a a new year conference I'm doing where I have to teach five sessions on the book of Hosea. (laughs) And Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament who was told by God, go and marry a good time girl. Marry a girl who will not be faithful to you. I want people to see through your experience the heartbreak that I feel when I love my people and they just will not love me back. And it's a tremendously touching book. Because Hosea talks again and again about God's anger, God's, God, God, God's uh, heartbreak, God's, God's disillusionment with his people. And it says, how can I give you up, O Israel? How can I turn you like Admar or Zeboim? My heart is turned within me. And God changes his mind yet again about how he feels about his people because ultimately he loves them, their family. And when you're a child of God's, that's it. That, then God's protection and God's presence are there for you as well. The fourth thing, Prince of Peace. Well, that's an easy one, isn't it? That's got to be peace. But remember, in the Bible, peace is the word shalom. And that means more than just peace and quiet. I mean, sometimes when uh, uh, we have all four of our grandchildren in the house, they can make quite a racket. I want you to play with that, and she's got it. It's my turn now. Come on, call it to And I'll just go, <laughs> Peace! and suddenly peace descends for about 10 seconds. And, and it all starts rising up again. It's not that kind of temporary, fragile peace that uh, the Bible means by shalom. It's wholeness. It's, 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 it's everything working together, a life that fires on all cylinders. Peace means something that's, that's a positive quality. It's something that protects us against all of the, the, the worries and the problems and the enemies that we've got out there. The peace of God passes understanding, and and, and and the Apostle Paul promises in Philippians, doesn't he, that uh, if you are anxious for nothing, and you make your requests known to God, if you're a Christian, God's peace will descend into your heart, and the peace of God will garrison about your heart and your mind it'll build a fort around you it's a military word that he uses it will keep off all of those attacks peace is not a weak thing that disappears as soon as two people start fighting peace can be a strong thing that controls your life and keeps you going in the midst of the most strong storms and stresses you could ever see and Jesus he's the prince of peace he's the one who brings it and administers it wherever he goes so this is what Mary's being offered. And the final question you've got to ask is, how did Mary react to all of this stuff? Well, I think three things stick out to me. First of all, she was realistic. How can this be? I have never known a man. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a girl who's used to these things. And you're saying, I'm gonna have a baby? How can this be? And she knows exactly what she's heading into. David Gooding in his great commentary on, on Luke says, you know, there's no way that Mary would have made up this story. <laughs> to uh, try to convince people that she had not been a naughty girl. There's no way she'd get away with it. Not in Galilee, not, not in, in Jewish culture. And of course, um, even in the circumstances, you find later on that um, uh, people say to Jesus very meaningfully, we were not born in fornication, unlike <laughs> some people. And Jesus goes around with this stigma that his wife was no better than she ought to have been. And she knew exactly what she was heading into when she said, let it be to me as you have said. She knew exactly the burden she was taking on. In her culture, there's no way she could have made this up. Oh, it wasn't that I I, I strayed from my my, my betrothal. Um, It's just that the Holy Spirit overshadowed. Oh, yes, of course, Mary. Yes, certainly. Nobody would have reacted like that. She knew exactly what was going to happen. So when she took on... The, the message of the angel, she was being incredibly realistic about it. And it is important to check these things out. Christianity isn't just a, a package of, of uh, um, happy ideas and wishful thinking that, that people believe because they like it. It's got to be something that, uh, that makes sense in the real world. And so, before people become Christians, it, it does make sense to test it out, to see whether or not it does make sense before you take the jump. But ultimately, you've got to take the jump. And the second thing is that she was ready. She was prepared for what was going to happen to her. She knew the premises, she knew the situation, she knew what God was demanding of her and she went for it. Another thing about Mary that we haven't really mentioned is she was a very thoughtful kind of girl in, in the sense that she thought a lot more than she spoke. You see again and again in Luke's Gospel, don't you, the phrase and Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart. She wouldn't say very much but she came to her own conclusions. In uh, 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 John chapter 2 for instance first miracle Jesus did at a wedding in Cana he's there with his mother and his disciples and his mother goes to them and says um, I have no wine and Jesus gives a pretty discouraging answer Mary this is not your business or mine the time has not yet come for this kind of stuff no and still Mary knows what he's saying and she goes to the people and says whatever he says to you do it she knows more than she says (laughs) She's that kind of a girl, and she's come to a conclusion, whatever God wants, she's going to do it. And so the third thing, as we finish here, is she was resolved. She had made up her mind, and she wasn't going back on it. And she says, here I am, the Lord's bond servant. I have promised myself to God. i committed myself to him. I've put myself into a relationship with him, where whatever he says, however crazy it sounds, that's what I'm going to do. And I wonder if that, for those of us who are Christians, is the ultimate challenge of the Mary story. God wants to do all of those wonderful Isaiah 9 things through one 14 or 15 year old girl. She's not ready for marriage yet, but God says she's ready to bear his son, the most important person in the history of the universe. And she says yes. If we all say yes to God, whatever he asks for us, with the same courage, the same commitment, and the same realism, who knows what God can do with our lives. Let's just pray for a second and hand back to Kim. Heavenly Father, we've heard this story so many times before, but we're still staggered at the courage of that young girl. And we just pray that you'll help us, if we're Christians, to emulate that in a way that we're prepared to follow you in any way that you ask us to follow you. We pray too, Father, that if we're not Christians, you'll help us discover the one who brings planning and power and Protection and peace into our lives in a way that nobody else can. It can be the best Christmas present we ever give ourselves. And we ask that you help us understand it. For your name. For your name. Amen.